The title of the message this morning is the, the Body is the Lord's. The Body is the Lord's. And as Pastor Steve just read, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Okay, last week we ended up um, in the middle of interpreting 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. More specifically, we looked at the doctrine of justification. In verse 11, Paul says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Paul says, quote, such were some of you, end quote, in response to the many sins that he had just listed in verses 8 through 10. Remember that? You can see that right there in your text. Paul is referring to their lives, the lives of the Corinthians, dominated by sin prior to, or at least what should have been prior to them coming to know Jesus as transformed, born-again believers. You with me? Then Paul says, but you were washed. In other words, you were cleansed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding them that the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ washes away their sins and purifies them from all unrighteousness. Not only is their sin washed away, but their guilt should also be removed. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation to those or for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to keep that in mind for ourselves because the devil loves to accuse us. He's the accuser of the brethren. He loves to condemn us and make us feel condemned. Now, this is where the Corinthians should be in reality, they should understand these things. All of these things that accompany salvation should be past tense in their lives, but the fact actually was that some of them were still acting antithetically to this new way of life. Some of them were still steeped in their sins. Paul was frustrated with them. Any pastor today will tell you how uh, disheartening it can be to faithfully preach the word of God and biblically counsel congregants and yet still see them continuing to flirt with sin and or living a life that is completely contradictory to their profession 
of faith. It's very frustrating. Many times we see people in church heading right toward the edge of a cliff. And yet, despite our frantic warnings, they purposely continue on and then they go right over the cliff. Then they expect you to help pick up the pieces. And in fact, you do, because that's what pastors do. That's what good Christians do. And then many times they do it again. And that's kind of the road they're on for a period of time or for a season of time. And like the Apostle Paul, we remind people like that over and over again, that if they are truly in Christ, they have to grasp this. If you are truly in Christ, then you would be behaving differently, or at least you should be behaving differently. As pastors, we remind people of what Paul is reminding the Corinthians of in this text. Paul says, you were sanctified. In other words, why are you acting this way? You have been justified. You have been sanctified. Why then do you resemble someone who isn't even saved? If you were here last week, you'll remember me saying that Paul typically puts justification first and sanctification second in his writings. Then I said that I didn't know why he reversed the order here. (coughs) Excuse me. This week, that was bugging the snot out of me. And so I went kind of ballistic and I, I counted them. I read 14 different Bible scholars from Lutheran to reform to liberal, along with the study notes of 10 different study Bibles. And this is what I learned. None of them know why Paul did it either. (laughs) One thing that all of them did agree on, however, even the most liberal theologians, is that when Paul uses these terms, no matter what order he uses them in, he means the exact same thing that that he does in other passages of Scripture where he uses these same terms, despite the order, as I said. His definitions are the same. Um, With that said, most scholars agree that when Paul says here, uh, justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's verse 11, he means what what I said last week, which is justification is the legal declaration of righteousness, pronouncing you righteous, that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, right? We saw that last week. And when Paul speaks of being sanctified, the vast majority of, of, of scholars, all but one that I looked at, agree that Paul means the ongoing process of becoming holy 
that takes place um, in the life of every true believer when the power of the Holy Spirit um, comes upon us and causes us to grow in grace and become more and more conformed to the image of our Christ. And as such, we should always bear these facts, these definitions, these realities in our minds, the forefront of our minds, in order to reassure ourselves of this great salvific hope in our God, who, who listen, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world as his adopted, justified, sanctified, glorified elect. That's Ephesians 1.4. And as such, being in Christ, the Father redeems us through the blood of Jesus, forgiving our sins and sanctifying us through his Holy Spirit by, you've heard me say it a million times, the kind intention of his will, just because he wants to, just because he says so. You are pronounced righteous. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. All God, none of you, none of me. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 9. And if that's not enough, church, try this one on. Paul says that after listening to, quote, the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and having exercised believing faith in that gospel truth, we are sealed. We're sealed in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit of what? Promise. The Holy Spirit of promise. We've been given the pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption as God's own possession. That's Ephesians 2, 11 through 14. That's good stuff. Really good stuff. Why? Why have we been undeservingly given all these things? Answer, to the praise of his glory. That's it. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.14. We have so much to be thankful for, beloved, so much. Okay, now let's move on in our text from sanctification Justification 2, verses 12 through 20. Please follow along in your Bibles as I read this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this again. Your heading, uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, will say the body is the Lord's, or she should so at least. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. 
Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Let me stop there for a second. Look at verse 18. You know, if you have the New American Standard, it will just say, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Every other English translation, and I've checked them, the majority of them, um, say for verse 18, flee sexual immorality, not just immorality, sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the it should be sexually immoral or it should be the fornicator, okay, sins against his own body. The reason why I'm pointing that out is for some reason, I, I, I was not able to find out why. Believe me, I looked. I, I, did, I didn't understand. I still don't understand why the NASB um, has taken out the word sexual in this verse twice and just says flee immorality when the Greek is very clear and all the other English translations also um, agree. They translate it with the word sexual or with the word fornicator. And so I just want you to know, because it's very important um, when you read a verse, if it says flee immorality, that's much different than flee sexual immorality. And if it says, um, but the fornicator or the sexually immoral, that's much different than but the immoral, just the immoral. And so please be cognizant of, of those things. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Before we get into these verses, verses 12 through 20, I want to say a few words about them. Please humor me, okay? If you count, if you count the sermons that I have recorded and the ones I forgot to record, which there are quite a few. Um, I've preached around, I, I went back, I, Sermon Audio gives you a, a tally, so I didn't have to work very hard to do this. I didn't have to count them. Um, but I preached around 275 sermons in this church in, in the past nine, nine years. And I can honestly say that I have never, ever encountered a group of verses so incredibly difficult to interpret in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Ask my wife. I was going absolutely batty 
this week, I would have pulled my hair out if I still had any. Um, I'm, in, I'm in better company, though, I should say. Um, many scholars whose writings I searched and searched and searched this week while trying to prepare to exegete these verses also confess that they are some, 12 through 20, they are some of the most difficult, if there were two commentators that said they are the most difficult uh, group of verses in the entire Bible to interpret. I've never seen so many theologians disagree on any group of verses and what they mean. Um, But every scholar, even though a lot of them disagree with each other on different parts of what's going on here in these verses, um, every, every scholar seemed to give themselves a free pass if they tried to interpret these verses and got them wrong. It was kind of like a, yeah, this is what I think it means, but I'm not so sure, you know? And most of them were like that. And that's very comforting to someone like me who is not a scholar and who um, is having a hard time with, with the verses. So some scholars actually wrote official papers in theological publications as um, full-blown disagreements with other scholars who interpreted these verses in a different way. What is that? Do we know? I think it's the, I think it's the wind. Oh, okay. Okay. So I say all that to say this. I probably spent I probably spent a total of about eight or eight to ten hours just studying what other theologians had to say about these verses and reading everything I could get my hands on to try and help interpret them correctly. And of course I begged God to help me in the process. Many of the theologians I read agree with one another in stating that there is a lot of ambiguity here. However, I did my best to take that which they actually did agree on and put it into some sort of semblance that we all can grasp and understand. Um, What I'm about to say, there's absolutely nothing here that's original with me. I'm not that intelligent enough to have an original thought concerning these verses. So most of what I'm about to say is a hodgepodge of what I've derived um, as the general overall consensus of what theologians that I respect believe about these verses. You with me? So go easy on me, please. I'm going to um, plagiarize the best I can here, all right? Um, one thing that we need to understand as we interpret these verses is that, and, and this is the most important part, believe it or not, you're going to be like, why is this important? Um, we need to understand that the Corinthians had certain slogans, and I'm using the word slogans It's a clumsy word, but that's the word that most of the scholars use for this chapter, okay? The Corinthians had certain slogans that they used to describe certain things in their society and in their culture, okay? 
These were things that were accepted by a significant portion of the society. We also have slogans um, in our American society that we use to describe that which is accepted and done in our culture, right? We have slogans, and forgive me for my poor examples, we have slogans like life, uh, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is a phrase, obviously, that comes from the Declaration of Independence, and it reflects, most people would agree, it reflects the American values um, of individualism and the personal freedom that we hold dear in the United States. And we've also adopted things like advertising slogans as a way of life in our society. Um, one would be Just Do It by Nike, right? Or Buy American, uh, which has obviously been adopted by a large segment of our society. Just do it. Everybody knows what that means, you know, suck it up, get the job done. It was a Nike commercial, but we've adopted it in our society as something that's, that's true, and we use it a lot, right? Um, you know, by American, we're expressing our preference for buying products that are made in America um, if they're available in order to keep jobs and resources in the United States, okay? There's a boatload of these slogans and sayings in our, our society. You get the picture. The Apostle Paul had slogans too. Um, except Paul's slogans were written to counter the slogans of the Corinthians. Very important, okay? Paul's slogans were written to counter the slogans of the Corinthians. Now, we need to keep in mind that the context of Paul's thought in these verses is in and around the subject of sexual immorality among Christians, Okay, very important. And Paul begins this section of scripture by responding to the use of prostitution among Christians. And I realize how foreign that sounds to Americans in 2023, but we have to keep in mind, as I said last week, that sexual immorality of all kinds, all kinds, was common and accepted by many people in the Corinthian society. Paul responds to this um, sin of prostitution and sexual immorality by countering two slogans, two Corinthian slogans that had been adopted by some of the people in the Corinthian church. No one knows where these Corinthian sayings came from, but they are indeed there, and they were part of the culture. And most of the theologians I read, the vast majority, believe this is what's going on here. And I can't disagree with it from what I've read. The most important thing for us to see is that Paul directly opposed those who involved themselves with prostitutes by quoting their words back to them. It's a form of literary framework, okay? Paul quoted their words back to them and then made a statement to counter them. Does everybody see that? Okay. 
we see the first slogan in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's the first one. All things are lawful for me. Paul quoted these exact words or this exact slogan four times in this letter. He did it twice here in verse 12, and he did it twice in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, okay? Apparently, this saying was used to justify a host of different vices and illegitimate activities among the Corinthians. And in this morning's text, the slogan, okay, all things are lawful for me. Remember, that's our first one. This slogan is used to justify sexual immorality by the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, however, not 6.12, but 10.23, same slogan, all things are lawful for me, is used twice in one verse to refer to eating meat that was devoted to idols. So once the slogan's used to, for, the, for the Corinthians to claim liberty over sexual sin, and the other, it is used for the Corinthians to claim liberty over eating meat devoted to idols. Now, here's the tricky part, okay? There's a measure of truth in these words, in this slogan. Christ followers have indeed been set free from overbearing legalism. That's the true part. So they say, all things are lawful for me. I'm free in Christ. I have liberty in Christ. I'm not bound to the law. All things are lawful for me. And what does Paul say? Listen, what does he say to the Colossians? Not the Corinthians yet. What does he say to the Colossians? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 30 through 33, he says this. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters, Paul says, which have to do to be sure with the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and a severe treatment of the body, but there's no value against fleshly indulgences. In other words, you've made up all this religious stuff, extended fasting, fasting, you know, abasing the body, um, different ridiculous forms of repentance where you know, they would whip themselves and crack themselves with whips in order to show, show forth a theatrical way of repenting. I mean, they were all about this self-abasement stuff. And Paul's saying, look, in these matters, Christian believers have liberty. They're free from this garbage. Don't have to do it. And it's a matter of conscience, Paul says elsewhere, right? So, all things are lawful for me. Remember, that's our first slogan. All things are lawful for me. The truism, the truth that's in it says, I've been set free 
from the bondage of these things, these man-made religious rules. Here's the kicker. Even though everything I just said and that which Paul says to the Colossians is technically true, it is not, not how the Corinthians used those words or how they meant to use that slogan, okay? They used the slogan, all things are lawful for me or for us as a justification for their sexually immoral escapades, okay? And guess what? Paul was having none of it. No soup for you. Seinfeld, the the soup Nazi, okay? Paul's like, no soup for you. So what does Paul do? He counters their slogan with two rebuttals. First, he contended that not everything is beneficial. That's in verse 12. The Corinthians said, all things are lawful for us. And Paul countered with, yeah, but all things are not beneficial for you. Hello? Basically, that's what he was saying. So what's our lesson here from this as as a church? Our lesson is that although we have abundant liberties in Christ, our choices must be carefully weighed, carefully considered as to their spiritual benefit. Many practices, that though they're lawful for us, can have destructive and, and damaging um, effects on our walk with Christ and our relationships with other Christians in the body of Christ. Now, Paul also insisted that he would, like we read, not be mastered by anything. That's the other part of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So he repeats their slogan that they are using as a license to justify their sin, and Paul throws it right back at them by repeating it and then adding, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's his counter slogan, so to speak. So he's saying, look, sexual desires, they're great and healthy in the context of marriage. Yet, Corinthians, you have become victims of your own perverted desires, which lead to sin or have led to sin in your lives. They lost perspective. They lost control over themselves when they gave themselves over to sexual immorality. They allowed their desires to master them. And that is why Paul says, yeah, All things might be lawful for you in Christ, Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian, but not all things are beneficial for you. This goes for us also. If you or I allow, if we allow ourselves to become become distorted in our thinking and in our liberty in Christ, sinful practices will follow and that will only hurt us and hurt the people around us. But most important of all, it will harm our relationship with Christ. Sin separates us from God all the time. 
Jesus came so that our sin wouldn't separate us from God. But sometimes we lose perspective. And we do stupid things. As Christians, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be mastered by anything if we can help it. We, okay, let's just think logically for a minute. We could be mastered by many things in this life. We could allow ourselves, I should say, to be mastered by many things in this life. You might be addicted, you might be addicted to food. Perhaps you eat emotionally. You uh, use food to comfort and, and cope. Or maybe, maybe you're addicted to working out. Uh, you spend more time in the gym than you spend in prayer, Bible, study, and fellowship. Or, or, or like the Corinthians, you, you may be addicted to some sort of sexual immorality, or you may be addicted to pornography. You might be addicted to self. Uh, this is a big problem in America today. Too many narcissists who are addicted to themselves, addicted to putting themselves first in everything instead of looking to see how they can make things better for their family and friends and for their church, for others around them to put others first. Regardless of the examples that you can come up with, you could come up with a thousand of them. All of our addictions as Christians begin with the same common denominator. We exclude Jesus from the equation. It's as simple as that. We do all need to readopt the old and worn old slogan, what would Jesus do? We need to get back to that. As Christians, we um, were to rid ourselves of anything and everything that can keep us from faithfully following Christ and doing the work that he has marked out for us to do, and the way that begins is we exclude Christ. Now, that was just one slogan. The next slogan that is used by the Corinthians to support their sexual immorality is in verse 13, where we read, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Okay, listen carefully to this. From Paul's response to this slogan, it seems like the Corinthians employed these words to mean that sexual pleasure was meant to be enjoyed just as food was meant to be eaten and enjoyed. One more time. It seems like the Corinthians employed these words to mean that sexual pleasure was meant to be enjoyed just as food was meant to be eaten and enjoyed. Now, in this line of reasoning, the Corinthians try to defend their sexual immorality as something natural, something simply following the natural course of biology, like this. God created man as a sexual creature, 
therefore sex is inappropriate and good thing, they might say. That's something that they, they might say. Again, there's a measure of truth in this slogan also, okay? The, the, the enjoyment of sexuality is as natural as eating, is basically what they're trying to say. But this truism does not legitimize every form of sexual pleasure, which is exactly what the Corinthians were trying to say. Just because a a phrase is generally true or may be true at times doesn't mean it can be applied to legitimize perversion. And that's what they were doing. Paul counters this by reminding the Corinthians that God has the authority to limit and direct the way we live, not us. It is God who limits and directs the way we live. Paul was saying in verse 13, he was saying this, hey, despite the natural order of food for the stomach, God's going to do away and destroy them both. Do away with them and destroy them both. Verse 13. In other words, the fact that God will one day destroy the natural order as it is known proves that biological observations do not ultimately determine man's moral obligations. God is the ultimate authority for determining how humans must behave. He is the master over nature and his word must regulate how we live. Now, in the second part of verse 13, we'll call it 13b, and in verse 14, to drive this point home, Paul says to the Corinthians that sexual immorality cannot be justified as a natural biological practice like eating food because, and here's Paul's next counter slogan, he says, because the human body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Paul's saying, look, the revelation of God in Christ Jesus makes it very clear that the true natural order of things is very different from what is evident from mere biological observation. Forget your biological observations, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and let scripture be your guide on what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to behave. And scripture's clear. A singular relationship exists between our bodies and Christ. Well, it's a woman's body. She's free to choose. No, it's not a woman's body. It's Christ's body. And as such, we are to serve him with our bodies. How do we know that? Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And how about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, our text? 
Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Indeed, our bodies have been bought with a price. Christ's shed blood through a horrific death on a cross bought us. And we are not our own. Christ redeems all of us, even our bodies. In order to nail down on this fundamental truth, Paul reminds us of Christ's own resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Again, our text. In the same way, on that great and final day, the day of judgment, God will resurrect the bodies of everyone who has ever lived. Those who believed in Christ will be resurrected unto eternal life with him and those who didn't believe in Christ unto eternal separation from him. This is the true natural order of things, Paul is saying to Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian and it's the natural order of things for you and I. Our bodies belong to Christ and they must be used in service to Christ for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.